Well, good morning. We've gathered here today, and we've got a couple of holidays going on uh, as it stands at the same time. So we've got one holiday, Juneteenth, which is uh, a new one that we're sort of beginning to recognize as a people, but it's one that goes back all the way to the 1800s where uh, people that were enslaved there found out that they had been freed. And so this is a, this is a place for our country where uh, we saw God work and bring freedom where it wasn't before, uh, where injustice was happening, freedom came. And so we, we uh, celebrate that and look forward to more of that happening. But we're going to be talking a bit more today about the holiday of Father's Day going on today. So we're, uh, it is Father's Day here in America, and as a dad of young kids, I can tell you that one of the biggest like, yearnings of my heart is to see my kids falling in love with and growing to trust and place their hope in, in Jesus. So each of us as believers, whether you have sons or daughters, whether, whether you have children or not, you have those people in your life that God has placed there that you just long for them to, to know and to experience the treasure of Jesus. You just want that for them. And as a dad, one of the greatest ways that, that I have the privilege of being able to introduce my kids to Jesus is uh, through God's word and sharing the word with them. Now, some nights, not many, but some nights I actually get out this Bible and, and read straight to them from stories that they probably wouldn't hear in other Bibles. But because I have two kids, as you know, under eight, most nights, if you're seeing Katie and I during family worship, we're reading from one of the, the several children's storybook Bibles that we've, that we've collected. So, and there's been a shift. So I remember reading a storybook Bible growing up with my parents and uh, it was pretty extensive. There's some good extensive ones. So many of the stories of scripture are, are hit and touched on, but there's been a good shift, I think, to come alongside that of a way of doing storybook Bibles where there's a major focus on the big overall picture of scripture that kind of is centered on Jesus. So it's been, it's been a good thing. And so some of our favorites that, that we like to read through are, maybe some of y'all know these, the, the big picture storybook Bible. There is a gospel story Bible. The biggest story is one that we like a lot. And then, of course, most people know the Jesus storybook Bible. Uh, these are just some of them. Maybe y'all know some more. But these have been really helpful. But you might be thinking in hearing this now, where did this come from that like all the scriptures are pointing to, to Jesus and, and kind of he is at the center of all of that. Where is that coming from? You might ask. And well, it, it honestly, it comes from Jesus himself. We see some, some hints of this in John five thirty eight and 39, where Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says these really important striking words. He says, and you will not have, and you do not have his word. That's talking about his father's word abiding in you. Jesus is telling him for you to not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus says. So get this for a second. Jesus claims to people that literally have memorized whole books of the Bible. 
Some of them, Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, they have that in their minds. Jesus is telling them that they're missing everything the scriptures are there to show them. That eternal life comes through him. And then we see more of this after our Lord is resurrected. Uh, This comes so clearly, especially a couple times in Luke 24. So Jesus, the first time is pretty famous. Uh, Jesus shows up with two people that are mourning and they're walking on this road to Emmaus. And he shows up kind of behind him and asks him what's going on and kind of, kind of almost plays dumb a little bit, like just wondering what they're going to say. And they are just sad and mourning that Jesus has been killed. And so Jesus hears this and gives these words um, to them. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he later kind of retold this story. I mean, you got to imagine this would be the greatest Bible study of all time, right? It's Jesus telling you all about the scriptures, how they're pointing to him. So Jesus is having this fish dinner with his disciples after he's resurrected. He's, he's shown up and he says this and just listen into this master class that Jesus has given them. He says, then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise up from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. So did you catch that? After the resurrection, Jesus repeats twice that the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to him and what he has just accomplished on the cross and the the empty tomb. So without realizing this before this week, I hadn't even thought of this until now. It's likely one of those disciples in that original master class of Jesus was the one that told Paul um, when he's referring to it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to be one of our anchor texts this morning. But when Paul's talking about, uh, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, this likely came from some of those disciples that were with Jesus that day. And Paul goes on to say in this famous summary of the gospel, he says these words, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here we see plainly the good news of Christ dying and rising from the dead on the third day. And it's not just foretold in one place in the Old Testament. It's foretold in many places in accordance with the scriptures. So this, again, serves as another reminder. Another place stated in the entire Bible is pointing to Christ, but even more to Christ's death and his resurrection. Now, I don't, I don't know about you personally, but for me, it's a lot easier for me to think through uh, where places are in the Bible where Jesus 
was going to die. This Messiah was going to come who was going to die for sins. It just seems easier to think through those examples. Maybe you could throw out a couple in Genesis, right? So Genesis 3.15 talks about the seed of the woman, this woman being Eve, her offspring is going to crush the head of that serpent or the snake that Revelation tells us is actually Satan himself. But at the same time, the snake is going to crush his heel. So you see that death in the midst of victory. Or how about uh, when a few verses later, when God takes animal skins and clothes Adam and Eve, that would have taken, unless God decided to speak it into existence, which it doesn't say that, I think it's implying there had to be a death of one of God's creatures to cover the shame of Adam and Eve and their sin. So these are, these are just a couple examples. Maybe even clearer ones, though, if we think about it. Maybe clearer ones would be, how about during Passover, right? You got, you got Passover. God is bringing his last plague of judgment on Egypt. And if the people are going to avoid, God's people are going to avoid this destruction that's coming, they have to take a spotless lamb and they have to sacrifice it and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and then on the lintel of their houses. And the destroying angel would pass over them. The judgment would not come into their house, but it would be passed over them by the blood of the lamb. Or, or maybe the clearest that we heard a bit of this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 53, right? The suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. So we think of those, maybe you guys can think of many more, but what about the resurrection? Where is the resurrection in the scriptures as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about? And specifically, is there anything about the third day? So this has always been harder for me, and it's one of the reasons why I'm preparing for this sermon today. I kind of just put it to the small group on Tuesday night. I just kind of asked them, where do you guys see the resurrection in the Old Testament? Where do you see it? And so some of us said, well, uh, one of the answers we came up with was maybe in Jonah's story. He was in the, the belly of the whale three days and three nights before he was spit out to go back to Nineveh where he should have gone and to share that message. Uh, so that was one. Another person said, kind of went back to the passage we looked at a little bit ago, the end of Isaiah 53, where it seems this person at the end who is suffering actually uh, is, is coming back to life and seeing things come about through resurrection. And there's, there's several others, Hosea 6.2 you might look into, uh, Psalm 16, Job 19, uh, someone at, at work told me this week that would be a good one. But maybe the, the best one, the best one, or one of my favorites, is one I want to share today. And this is one uh, Cindy actually mentioned during our small group this week. This is one that I think is one of the rare ones that has both Christ's death and his resurrection that's kind of encapsulated in the one story. And that's where we're going to be spending our time today, in Genesis 22. We're going to be there. And most of the time, we will go through a passage, and we're just kind of really sticking to that passage, and we're working through it. This time is a little bit different for a sermon for us at our church. I'm going to be working through Genesis 22, but I'm really using the lens of Isaiah 15 
Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that lens is helping us to kind of get a, get a different perspective on that, on that passage, Genesis 22. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, we did read through this. Carl read through it earlier. Most of us know this story. So I'm just going to take a bit of time to just set up how we got to this place in Genesis 22 and then give a brief summary. And then we'll hit on kind of, kind of three points to really grab onto from it. So first, just kind of the, the setup. How do we get here? So in Genesis 12, Abram and Sarai are told to leave the place where they live. And they're told to go to a land that God's going to tell them. They kind of have a general direction, but they don't know exactly where they're going. And God promises to bless them, to give them a great name that will be a blessing, to make them into a great nation, to bless those who bless them, to curse those who curse them. And then to eventually, through Abram, somehow, God's going to bless all the families of the earth. And so Abram believes God, leaves behind his extended family, his home, and he, he goes and follows God. And sometime after he gets there, along with his wife Sarai, along with Lot, his nephew, and some others, some, sometime after he gets there, God appears to him in a vision and speaks to him. And, and Abram kind of brings up, he's, he's like, God, now I don't have a child and you've, you've promised these things. I don't, I don't have a, a child at all yet. This one that's not even related to me or very distantly is going to be my heir. And he kind of asked him, Lord, what's going on? You know, I can't understand. And God says to him, he promises him he will have a child. And he tells him to go outside and he tells him, see if you can take count of all the stars that are up there. And if you can number those, which you're not going to be able to, that's what your offspring will be like. And Abram believes God and God counts it to him. He credits him. He gives him right standing with God because he believed him. Now, fast forward um, 11 years. It's he's 75 when he left for this land. Now he's 86 and Still no kid, still no child. So he and Sarah decide to take it into their own hands. They're going to help God fulfill his promise. They take it into their own hands. And through Hagar, the servant, um, she gets pregnant and they have a child. But this just causes all kinds of mess for their family, for Hagar especially, for the child, for Sarai. And it's a mess. And Sarai still has no kids. There's still no children after all this time. So fast forward 13 years later, 13 years later, God appears to Abram again. And this time he changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father to um, father of a multitude, Abraham. And Abram, Abraham is now 99 years old. And he promises at in a year's time, your 90 year old wife is going to become pregnant. And have a child. And so sure enough, in a year, in a year's time, Sarah does become pregnant. Her name is changed. She becomes pregnant and has this long-awaited, highly anticipated son, Isaac. And they have Isaac. And then there's this unknown set of time of when Isaac was born till our chapter where we are in, in Genesis 22. It's, 
It, it could be as, as few as like five to eight years, but it's probably about 20 years, maybe. We're not totally sure. But there's this amount of time, and it's at this very point that we hit our main text this morning. And the text starts by telling us it was after these things that God tested, God tested Abraham. And he does so with arguably one of the hardest tests in all of Scripture. And so what we're going to do this morning is divide our time up into three different sections, three parts this morning. Part one, the testing of Abraham points to Christ's death. The testing of Abraham points to Christ's death. Second point, the testing of Abraham points us to Christ's resurrection. And then third point, Jesus' death and resurrection is the key to every test. Jesus' death and resurrection is the key to every text. And if you don't remember anything this morning at all whatsoever, remember this, that the greatest father provides Jesus for life's every test. The greatest father provides Jesus for life's every test. So as we're, as we're starting with this summary, here is the test. Verse 2, God tells Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, and offer him up as a burnt offering on the mountain that God is going to show him. And before I move further with our summary, just let's think about this test for a second. This is the son he has waited for for 25 years who God has been promising to him over and over in various ways. This son is the one through whom all of this offspring is going to number the stars and be like the grains of sand on earth. It's going to be named through this one son. And now God has commanded him to offer him as a burnt offering. And so there are two stumbling blocks here that before we get back to the summary, I want us to just think about that could have tripped up Abraham that I believe God protected him from and allowed him to fight through. The first stumbling block, lack of understanding, and the second was offense. Lack of understanding and offense. Imagine the questions of misunderstanding or lack of understanding Abraham would have been tempted to think about and dwell in. Think about some of these questions like, could this be God asking when it makes no sense? No sense. It seemed to directly contradict his promises, right? Was this God speaking to him at all? Was this God? And then think of the offense um, could have hit Abraham. The, the second symbol block offense could have really hit Abraham with major doubt and disbelief and disobedience. Following it, think about these questions that that Abram might have asked himself. Maybe we would have asked if we would have been Abram, Abraham. How could God ask this after all these years? How could God ask this? Is God still for me for good? Was he setting me up all this time only to break my heart in the end? Is God even real? And if he is, is he the loving and all-powerful God I thought he was at the beginning? I ask you, friend, does your trust in God go only as far as your understanding of him leads? 
Does your faith and obedience end the moment your displeasure or offense with God begins? Remember, our thoughts are not his thoughts. And our ways are not his ways. His thoughts and ways are infinitely higher than ours. As believers in Christ, we're God's children. We're God's children. We hear that over and over again. And that means we're not his peers. We're not his peers, right? So as we, as we think of that, as we think of these things, remember the scriptures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The proverb tells us, tells us that. Remember when John was in prison and Jesus hadn't rushed to save him. You remember John the Baptist, his cousin? And John asked Jesus through messengers, are you the one that's to come or should we, should we wait for someone else? I mean, surely John's thinking, at least for my cousin would get me out of this. I, I have a bigger ministry here. And do you remember Jesus' answer? He reminds him, he reminds him of the great things from Isaiah that he's doing, right? He reminds him of the great things that the, the um, dead are coming back to life. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing. Those who are lame are getting up and walking. And then he says at the end, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So as we, as we think through that, think about Abraham's response. Remember what God has done and obey quickly what you know to do. Maybe that's some of the best things we can do when we're tempted to be uh, not understanding what's going on in our lives or we're going through a time where we could easily just fall into a fence with God. Remember what God has done and obey quickly what you know to do. Verse three, Abraham doesn't wait to question or mull through these things as I probably would have for a week or so, just thinking about how can this be? What's Abraham wakes up early in the morning. He saddles his donkey he gets a couple of his uh, guys in his household with him and he takes his son, Isaac. And think about that. When he's, when he's getting his son, Isaac, right? This just taking him himself. I mean, Isaac is the very existence of God's miracle at work in his life. A hundred year old man, 90, 91 year old wife having a child that God has been promising for years. He's a testament to God's faithfulness. So he's seeing Isaac and he takes him along and they move forward. In one sense, his son is as good as dead in his mind, yet Abraham has trust of God in his heart, as we'll see later. So a side note this morning as we get back to our summary is to remember the great things God's done in Scripture, in your own life, and in Christ to obey quickly and do what you know to do when you're in difficult situations, maybe even going through tests with God. And most of us know the story. We've heard it read. Most of us know where this is all going. As we know, Abraham goes through with the command. He goes to the mountain. He creates a wooden altar. He binds his son on top of the wood. And then at the last minute, as he reaches for his knife, and he reaches his hand to take the knife, the angel of the Lord stops him. Stops him from killing his son. Then Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees caught in the thicket a ram. Caught in the thicket by his thorns. And he offers it 
as a burnt offering instead of his son. So point one, the testing of Abraham points to Christ's death. The tie-ins to the death of Christ are immediately evident here. First, we see Abraham, a a bit of God the Father's heart in in Abraham, right? Three times total, verses 2, verse 12, verse 16. When talking to Abraham, God the Father refers to Isaac as your son, your only son. And I know God does this purposefully as he's sharing this with, with Abraham. This is, this is certainly, as God sees it, the son of the promise, the son of the covenant, his, his only son that's been given for this covenant promise. And this, of course, points to our Heavenly Father. But as we think about the wood that Isaac carried up to the altar, the Heavenly Father who laid the wood of the cross on the back of his one and only son, whom he loved and fully gave him up to die for sinners. That's not all. At least two other characters are great pictures of Christ that we can see here. There is Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, and we see him. He is the only son of the covenant, and he, again, as we just said, took the wood on his back, And was bound to the altar. Now get this. Without any sign of struggle. There's no sense in this passage. There's any struggle from Isaac. He's going there. He he wouldn't know exactly why he's going there. Or what's going on. But he's going there. And he takes the wood on his back. And then lays down on it. On the altar. And of course. When we see that. We think about Jesus. As God's true one and only son. Knowing the full weight of all that was coming in full obedience, in full obedience to his father, goes toward Jerusalem, bears the wood on his back and fully lays down his life for us as sinners. And then there's the ram, right? The ram caught in the thicket by his horns. This implies here that he's a sacrifice without blemish. His body's not caught in all the gnarled trees and branches and maybe thorns. It's just the ram's horns. So the body would have been a pure animal, a pure sacrifice that would have been used. And another thing interesting about rams, rams were primarily used for ordaining priests and they were used on the day of atonement, right? This is when rams are used as sacrifices in the Old Testament. And then, of course, we see Christ in this, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God and the true high priest who provided by the Father a substitute in the place of all sinners who will believe in him. All who will believe in him, all sinners that will. Jesus is the perfect substitute. So these are things we're reminded of, and they are remarkable in this story. How many parallels that we can see there, right? Especially when you think about Mount Moriah, where this happened, being the place where the temple of Solomon was was set, and maybe, perhaps, even Golgotha. We don't know, but it's very likely. But as we think about this, where is the resurrection? Where do we see this in the story? I would say, look back in verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 22. So Abraham rises early in the morning, we've said this, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood 
for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So point two, the testing of Abraham points us to Christ's resurrection. And you may be saying, I still don't see it. Like I'm still not connecting the dots of resurrection here. But a couple things stick out um, to me from this. Remember verse four that we um, just read in 1 Corinthians 15. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this place in, in verse four of Genesis 22, where it says on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is one of only 35 or or less times in the whole Old Testament that this word for third day appears. Shalishi Yom. This combination of these two words together, it's only a handful of times in the whole Old Testament you see it. And this text particularly mentions Abraham looked up with his eyes and saw the place where uh, God was telling him to go on that, on that third day. And while we can't be sure completely, it seems likely that they were able, it says they saw it from afar, but it's likely they actually, all the things that transpired that we just talked about, laying Isaac on the altar, the, the ram coming, God warning him and the ram coming as a substitute, all these things that's likely happened on the third day. It's likely because Abraham had in his hands the, the fire that he was going to use for the burnt offering. It's pretty unlikely he's going to take the fire around all day long if it's not where they're going to be um, going into a, a second day. So this, this happened. Um, they saw it on the third day. And, and even more than this, I think that the biggest thing to me that Um, that I remember seeing, okay, what was Abraham, what must he have been thinking? You know, that would, that would help us in this passage if we could know that. And most of the time that's a bad road to go down because the Bible won't tell us like what people are thinking during certain times. But in this case, as, as Cindy pointed out during our small group time, we actually do know what Abraham was thinking at this time. It actually comes from Hebrews 11. 17 to 19, it says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham trusted God and his promises so much that even in this incredibly perplexing test and situation that he found himself in, he believed God was even able to raise up his son to actually fulfill and be good on his promises that he had made. And in the end, his son, who was called to die, did rise back up off of that altar and came back down the mountain with him. Just as he told the two men that he left aside while he and Isaac went to the place, he did come back with his son from worshiping. On the third day, Abraham looked to the place where he thought he knew his son would have to die. But it was in that place on the third day that God provided a substitute. 
It was on that third day that the life of Abraham's son was restored back to him for the rest of his days. It was that third day that God provided and Abraham's solid hope was restored to him concerning his son. It was on that third day that Abraham was promised by God that a seed, a descendant of Abraham's would bless all the nations and all the peoples of the world. So look, friends, this morning to the greatest father and our savior. An infinitely costlier sacrifice and greater magnificence, the father went all the way with his test and sacrificed his only son, whom he loved for us, for sinners. Our Savior, with the joy that was set before him, willingly laid down his life on Mount Moriah, where God always provided, and literally rose from the dead on the third day, never, never to die again. It was the third day that God permanently robbed one that death had claimed. It was the third day that the hope of the ages and nations rose back up from the grave. It was the third day that God showed Jesus' sacrifice was enough to pay the debt of sin for all who will believe. And as we see the story of testing in Genesis 22 as a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ this morning, how do we apply this? How do we apply this to our lives? First, for those of you that have never put your trust in Christ, or those of you that are going through a test and it's difficult now and you don't know where you stand. Maybe, maybe you are being tempted by a test of offense or maybe just not understanding why you are where you are. If you're here today, will you consider Jesus today? Will you consider him today? Will you look to him and realize that not only does he have a central place in all the scriptures, but that he deserves the central place in your life and your heart. Will you recognize that if you'll simply look and believe in him, that he died for your sins, he stepped in your place and died for them. He didn't just die for sins. He died for your sins. Will you look at that? And will you believe today that God raised him up from the dead? Because if you will, God's promises, he promises you that you are forgiven. You are washed clean from the stain of sin that spread to all people. And you will receive power to walk in joy in the midst of the world, knowing that you've been chosen and adopted into the family of God. You have a home with God prepared for you and a relationship with the King of Kings that will carry you through every test and trial until you're with him face to face. So will you look to Christ this morning? I I plead with you, look to Christ this morning and find life in him. And believers, we've got to be real. We're going to have tests in life. God is going to put us in tests in life sometimes. Sometimes he's going to sovereignly allow things to come. Sometimes he's going to actively test. But in each or whatever situation, we're to look back to Christ and know that the greatest father provides Jesus for life's every test. 
The greatest father provides Jesus for life's every test. When we're lonely, we have God himself who will speak to us through the words of scripture and point us back time and time again in different places to his triumphant son. The father has given us the body of Christ who is there to rejoice with us when we're pumped and to weep with us when we are just stricken and broken. And we have the body of Christ to to serve as part of God's infinite means of provision. The body is there to, to gather and rally around each other. We know that our Savior who died for us is alive and for each of us. And in every moment, he is for us. He is with us. And we know that he will give us the comfort we need through his spirit alive inside of us. We know that by the spirit, we're sealed as his for all eternity. And that Christ, our rock, will keep us steady when all the world seems to be giving away. So if you are being tested, or I should say when you are tested, remember from our scriptures this morning, our great father has provided Jesus So that through faith in him, we have already passed the greatest test that we could not have passed. Being able to stand righteous before a holy God. For believers today, just as the scriptures point us to see the father's great provision through the son, through many different places. When we go through life's tests and trials, don't stay and stumble over the parts that we can't understand or, or take offense at God. Every test of life should point us back to Jesus for help, for comfort, for strength, for today, and then hope for tomorrow. So to close, I'll I'll close us out with this anonymous poem that hits hits the points this morning. God's word is perfect. His plan is sure. It all points to Christ, his death and life the cure. So when the world is darkest, when all evil has swarmed, look to the rock that no tool has formed. The king left heaven for earth and died for your sin. Then on the third day rose to make you his kin. He was there in the beginning. He'll be there in the end. He remains undefeated and he calls you his friend. Pray together. Heavenly Father, you alone know the trials and struggles and personal tests that each of us are in. You know our hearts, Lord. You, you know where we are and our great need for you. But I, I pray that as, as we're here this morning, that we would, we would take time to begin to put within our lives and the ways we respond to that Jesus would be at the, at the center of things. We would, we would be reverted back to him and back to the things that are ultimately true. And then in those times where we're going to need him, where it's, it's, we're struggling, Lord, that we would, we would look to him and find strength in him and, and in his body that we have here around us. But I plead with any today that, that 
doesn't know where they stand. Or that you would draw them, you would pull their hearts to look to Christ. May they go run into him. Lord, we thank you for the ways that, again, all of your word points to him. We want all of our lives to point back to him. Help us to be faithful to to do that, Lord, to love you well. We do love you, Lord. Be with us as we transition into your last supper so we experience that. Move in our hearts, Lord. We pray right now, if we are going through some of those temptations of, of doubt or discouragement or disobedience that maybe comes from offense, maybe, maybe comes from just not understanding what's, what's going on because it's just too much. Lord, we pray that you would draw us to Christ. We could look into him. Lord, and we also pray that you would, you would help us to learn to hold each other up. Be there for one another. We pray your spirit would move to change us, God. And that we'd share this, this good news, not just head knowledge about Christ and his word, but that it's true that he's risen and you've called us to go and share this. That's one of the things that, that we know that you've called us to. So help us to do that faithfully. We thank you, Lord, in in Jesus' name. Amen.